Hello, everyone. I am Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed, and welcome to the very first episode of Here to Help for 2022. Today is January 10th, and Indeed is on day 678 of Global Work from Home. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs, and this is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us up at night. And what powers that mission is our people. And Here to Help is a look at how people's experience, strength, and hope inspire them to want to help others. Today, we have a very special guest, someone I've had the true pleasure of getting to know over the past few years, and someone I have the deepest respect for, Dr. Colette Pierce Burnett. Dr. Burnett is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Houston Tillotson University, an historically Black university and Austin's oldest institution of higher learning. She's the first female president of the combined institutions of Houston and Tillotson Colleges and was appointed in 2015. Dr. Burnett started her career in engineering and information technology leadership and later pursued a doctorate in education leading to her role here at HT. In addition to her work at Houston Tillotson, Dr. Burnett is deeply engaged in the Austin community. She has served as co-chair for the Mayor's Task Force on Institutional Racism and Systemic Inequities, Chair of Leadership Austin Board, Chair of the Central Texas Collective for Racial Equity, and Treasurer of the Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas, as well as numerous other local and national boards. And among her many accolades, far too many to list here, Dr. Burnett was just yesterday announced as Austinite of the Year for 2021 by the Greater Austin Chamber of Commerce, not only for her work in accelerating and expanding the city's historically Black university, but also for her citywide civic leadership. Dr. Burnett, Colette, thank you so much for joining me today, and congratulations on being named Austinite of the Year. Thank you, Chris. Um, I shared with you earlier, the gratitude is all mine. I'm not sharing my gratitude this morning. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, let's start where we always start these discussions with a simple question. How are you doing right now? So right this second, I feel a little weepy because while we were on the two-minute countdown, today is my first day back on campus um, since the holiday break. I had a conference last week, and of course, we had the holidays. So I haven't been back on campus physically since the 17th of December. Thanks to Zoom, I was working last week. And I have a lot of mail. So while we were waiting for the two minutes, I picked up... um, a card that I thought was really nice. And it was a letter from one of my um, allies, a white female here in Austin, with a $1,000 check in it saying that she wished she could do more for the university, but she taught a class and had extra money. But what really touched my heart about this was in it, she, um, she was expressing how the university's mission was so special to her because of her own collegiate experience and thanking me for my work here in Austin. And it just really touched me with the, the, the check is wonderful, but the card is beautiful. And what she put in the card was this. And it just really pierced my soul. So that's how I'm doing right this moment. It's just a great moment. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, 
as I mentioned at the start, among the many things that you've done, you are currently the president and CEO of Houston Tillotson University. Can you talk a little bit about HT and what makes it so special? Gladly. Um, so I am not a historically Black college graduate. I went to The Ohio State University, and my husband is an HBCU graduate. He went to Morehouse. My son is an HBCU graduate. He um, graduated from Hampton University, and my sister graduated from Clark. So I've been around HBCU graduates, but I did not experience it in my undergraduate or graduate experience. There's something that happens on these campuses that is just magical for young people's lives. It's a space where it's truly a community. It really is a family, even with our moles and wars, just like all families. Um, it's just a magical place. And young people can come here and there is no um, mediocrity. There is no less than, there is no language of lack. Your true brilliance and your true gifts are re respected, appreciated, and lifted. And Houston Tillerson right here, we call ourselves the intellectual heartbeat of East Austin. We're really a jewel in the city. One of those spaces in the city that is rooted in the universe, in the, in the um, city's history, and a very important part of the city's history, and really a, a space of excellence. And we consider ourselves to be the community's university. That's what town-gown relationships are all about. And it has really been a, a good experience for me. We're 45% first generation, our students, and 70% are Pell eligible. So we have this wonderful um, group of young people who all they need is an opportunity, good books and good teachers. And that's what they find here at Houston Tillerson. They don't need to be saved. They just need to be exposed to opportunities. And that's, um, that, that mission, it's a calling for me um, to lead this institution. And I'm surrounded by, um, I said this in the interview about Austin Night of the Year, which I'm super humbled and grateful for. I said this, I have a whole army of people. My, I may be the face of it, the one whose name gets the award, but I'm surrounded by a lot of committed people committed to education and being the great equalizer. And that's what happens every day on this campus in and out. Even for the last 600 plus days, as you brought to my attention, um, probably even more so, I recognize the beauty and the power and the necessity of this mission to get people educated. So we're having this discussion today, January 10th, uh, exactly a week before Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And my, as a a longtime Austin resident, my introduction to HT actually was as part of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day parade that we have here, which historically starts on the campus of University of Texas at the MLK statue, goes through East Austin and ends at a, a big celebration on the HT campus. Um, last year, obviously due to COVID, the parade and the celebration were both canceled. My wife, Lizzie and I, and we talked about this last week, actually went on MLK Day, just the two of us, and, and did the walk ourselves from the statue over to campus. And it was definitely a, a different type of recognition. It was um, uh, very contemplative, seeing that the empty streets and, and the empty campus. Um, now, I know this year, we are not going to have a parade here in Austin, but you have planned a smaller event on campus, although with COVID, that's still in question. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of, of MLK Day and the celebration to HT and what marking this uh, event means to you? So um, Dr. King is iconic, obviously, in many lives, particularly in, in my own. 
in fact, that what I've been striving and pushing for and using as my mantra here in Austin about building a beloved community is comes, comes directly from the teachings of Dr. King, is building that beloved community for all, all residents of the community. Um, the march is very symbolic for me for in a lot of ways and a part of my evolution and my leadership, the evolution of my leadership here in Austin. The connection between University of Texas and Houston Tillerson is symbolized by starting the march at UT at the statue and then ending it here on my own campus. And when I first started, it was really an alienated relationship between University of Texas and Houston Tillerson, alienated in that we were not seen as a true partner. We were a part of the diversity arm as opposed to a true partner. And Greg Finvis and I started our, the previous president, started our um, presidencies at the same time. And he and I became friends. And he had a lot, we're both engineers, so we were both geeks, so we had the same common language. And we uh, really built a friendship, quite frankly, with he and his wife. And a, so that march became symbolic over time. And it, that connection was strengthened in me as a leader between the, the, our sister institution uh, as and Houston Tillerson. So that's one part of the march uh, in keeping with Dr. King's teachings that we are more alike than we are different and we need to complement each other as opposed to being contrasting and, and controversial and combative with each other. So that's a part of the element. Another part, of, I mean, the element of what it means to me um, and that partnership has strengthened over time, even under the current president, he and I have connected and really made commitment to each other to strengthen our partnerships at all granular levels. And that's healthy for Austin. It's healthy for higher education and it's healthy for Austin. We can't do what UT does and UT can't do what we do. So we have to complement each other. So that's the sim symbolism of the march itself between the two anchor institutions in the city. Um, one step above beyond that is when I first started, the march ended in the parking lot of Houston Tillerson. For some reason, probably good ones, uh, the march did not come onto the campus. Over time, Houston Tillerson became very closed inside of ourselves. We had a fence around the campus, uh, um, a chain link fence around the campus, really to protect ourselves from perceptions of what was happening around us. And I'll put perceptions because I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't here then. That being said, I was wondering why does it end in the parking lot? And you know that why you keep doing something over and over and over, but no one really questions or knows why. We're not continuing to be curious about something. And as a new person, I don't know. So I asked the question of the organizers actually, and they told me that it was not an option to come onto campus. I said, we're gonna change that the next year. So then next year we opened the gates up and I actually marched with um, Mayor Adler that year. Uh, my husband and I marched with Mayor Adler and um, Diane Lynn uh, that year. And that was really a good experience, a good bonding experience to march up that hill and down that hill and onto campus. So we, uh, we had our band, our, our drum line, not our band, our drum line playing, our students were chanting. And it was really a good moment. And then we just led the crowd directly onto the campus and people, it was as though something fell, like a wall fell. And that might have been something just me in my mind. But after that, there were people who had never been on the campus. And we are an oasis. We have a beautiful campus. You would never know what's up on this hill until you come onto the campus. 
So people came onto the campus and it was really a festive moment. It was almost like a family reunion. And that strengthened over time, even when it was super cold one year. People still came onto the campus. It was still very festive. People still stayed around. People still talked to each other. Um, You know, someone who doesn't have the first language as you, same first language as you, or someone who doesn't look like you, um, someone who's not in your age bracket, we were encouraging people just to talk to people. So that was a symbolic, almost like the wall crumbling, coming down, crumbling down. That's a presidential word, crumbling down. So it seemed like the wall um, just just came down. And we've been very intentional ever since then throughout the year, not just on the the day that we recognized Dr. King, but intentional uh, every day that we open the campus up. It's beneficial to our students because it's a two-way reciprocal relationship with the city of Austin, with the community, Um, just not just on King's Day, that we do that on a continuing basis. And that's how you build a beloved community to really get to know each other as, as on a very human level. Let's uh, take a quick step back and look at your career journey a bit. You began life working in the world of engineering and information technology. You spent time at institutions like the Washington Post, Procter & Gamble, Washington State Department of Transportation. What did you get from those experiences and how did that help lead you into academia? So my first job out of um, undergrad at Procter & Gamble University, Procter & Gamble, Procter & Gamble Corporation, everything's a university. Everything's, everything's a teaching moment in my mind now. Uh, my children who are grown people remind me, mom, every moment is not a teaching moment. I tell them, yes, every moment is a teaching moment. You're always at a university. So my first position out of undergrad as an operations support engineer at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio, was my true corporate training. Uh, Procter & Gamble was blue suit, briefcase, um, true professionalism. You don't talk about your salaries. You come, you do a good job. You only strive for excellence. The Washington Post was very adventurous for me. Um, It was an exciting time. There at the Washington Post, even though I was, uh, you know, a programmer, um, a systems analyst working on the Sunday edition of the paper, which was worth a lot of money and revenue. So everything had to be right. Carrying a pager, you know, pre-cell phones, et cetera, on call 24-7, even while pregnant. That was really an adventure for me. I loved working at um, the Washington Post. And then the Washington State Department of Transportation was my glass ceiling as a professional. I had a a large um, staff um, responsible for all IT projects within the the transportation system to include the ferries. So it was was a, um, a very intense position when it comes to level of responsibility, et cetera, but a good experience. So my husband, I'm an Air Force wife. We are an Air Force family. My husband was active duty. I was with him 20 of his 21 years active duty. So when he decided to retire, it was my time, so to speak, to think about what I wanted to do because my career transitioned every time we moved to a new base. And I was very fortunate and blessed to have really good jobs because this is in the 80s and the 90s. And that was a time frame when a black female engineer was a commodity. Um, Unfortunately, that's still the case. But at that time, for me and my journey, um, it was very easy for me to find a position in a good, solid space where I grew, um, you know, every plateau was the next platform to the next level. So I reached um, a, a plateau, but I don't think that I, in fact, I know 
that I never wanted to be an engineer. I was very good in math in high school. Thank you to my grandmother's training me. And um, when you're good in math and graduate from high school in 1975, black female, it was, you were a commodity. So I ended up at Ohio State University. In fact, I'm first generation myself. When I told my grandfather, and I've told this story um, because it's really monumental in my life, he was watching a Cleveland Browns game. I'll never forget it. And I said, Papa, I was interrupting him. You don't interrupt during Cleveland Browns game, but I was so excited. I said, Papa, I'm going to school to learn how to to become an engineer. And he took a deep breath and he looked at me and he said, girl, why you want to go drive a train? You're always trying to do something different because in his mind, that's what an engineer does. So off to Ohio State, I went um, and I don't know who filled out my FAFSA, how I got there. My English teacher was dating my uncle and she had actually driven me. My white English teacher was dating my uncle. That's just part of the story. And she, she took a special interest in me. And so she actually drove me to Ohio State, which now I know is when you bring the pre-freshmen in and, you know, um, high school students in to interest them in the college. I stayed in the residence halls. I fell in love with it and um, ended up at Ohio State as an engineer. So served as an engineer for almost 21 years. Actually, 21 years. Exactly. 70. Yes, 21 years. And I co-op through school and I was Ohio State's first co-op student. Now we call it internships, but at, in the College of Engineering, I was their first co-op student because my mother had worked for 20 years at the Illuminating Company in Cleveland, which is their utility, now called First Energy. And she shared that I was going to Ohio State as an engineer, and they were interested in hiring summer interns. So I became Ohio State's first co-op student, um, which was a part of my journey. I worked at a nuclear power plant, which was a, a very eye-opening. And I started off as a mechanical engineer. And my first summer, I worked with all white men in a, um, in a coal-fired power plant. And they put me in the basement of the power plant with a manometer um, to check the rate, the, um, to t- take the measurements hourly for the whole day. They were hazing me. Um, I drove them around in the 18-passenger van. They don't know they were taking their lives at, at risk. Um, and um, I did it that summer, but I went back to school in the fall, and I met with them. Now I know is the chair, and told him I don't. Who my English teacher had introduced me to, and I told him I don't want to be an engineer. I'm changing my major to business. And he said maybe you don't want to be a mechanical engineer. He said, but we have a new field called information systems, and um, this did Ohio State had just started that uh, major up. And I transferred into that, and that's how I got into information systems, what we now call information technology um, or computer science engineering, which um, was changed the trajectory of my life. So when my husband retired, I came into my own reckon- reckoning, if you will, that I need to do something that I have passion about, something that I want to I go to work every day, and I want to feel good about it. And I had always loved learning. I mean, it's, it's instilled in me from my childhood, the passion for learning. So I quit my corporate job and got a t- job teaching um, information technology, information systems 
at a community college in Washington State. Um, my family thought I was losing my mind. All my friends are like, maybe she's going through the change. You know, we call it the change of life. Um, but I was too young to be doing that at that time. So I took a leap of faith and I never looked back. So I started teaching and the um, vice president of academic affairs at that time, they lost their chief information officer, their CIO. And she said, you could do this job with your um, eyes closed. So that's how I got into administration from teaching. I do really love teaching. I like when people, when people's minds lift or open up. So I got into administration there at a community college, a very large community college with a lot of resources in Washington state. Microsoft was pumping a lot of money into the community college system, just the, the education system in general at that time, 1996. So um, uh, it's now that I'm talking about this out loud, this reflection moment, um, you're here to help me, Chris, because this is like a therapeutic moment for me as I go full circle in my life. Um, I, the, the, the concept of, a, of administration was very easy to me because I was at a very resource, well-resourced place. My husband decided not to retire. He would take one more assignment. He was, a, he was um, going for lieutenant colonel. So he said, I'll take one more assignment. And it was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where we met, where we met in Ohio, he was stationed at Wright-Patterson as a second lieutenant. And I decided I'm doing something I love. My children had been to 13 different schools at that time as a result of my husband's military career. And I was always up and changing my, my, my life, finding a new barber, new petition, new, you know, new everything, every, every move. So I said, I'm not going. You could take this one last job, one last assignment. I'm staying here. So I stayed behind and stayed at Pierce College, which was the, the institution I was working at at the time. And then my husband met someone on the golf course, a very serendipity moment there in Dayton, Ohio, who told him about this institution called Central State University, that the state of Ohio, a historically black college, was um, um, almost closing. And um, my husband, being an HBC graduate, was very fascinated by the story. And he said they had one job in the administration left. Um, it was, the, it was the, the university was in crisis, the, the, but the govern, governor had come in to save the institution, keep it alive, remove the whole board, hired a whole new administrative team. They had one job left, the CIO. So I went on the interview just to see what it was about. And I was very, I am a change agent. I do like challenges. So I took that position there in Ohio, and I was there for the next 15 years in administration, rebuilding an institution. So Pierce College prepared me for that, for that experience because there, we had limited, if any, resources. And, um, but I knew what it was supposed to look like. So I, um, I'm a strong believer that you learn backwards to live forward. And every position then, in turn, prepared me for the next whether you know it or not. If you like this interview and want to hear more, hit subscribe. Catch up on any Here to Help episodes you might have missed, like my conversation with Lisa Ramirez, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Dr. Colette Pierce Burnett after this break. So let's jump ahead then. In, in 2015, you moved to Austin and took this 
big leap to become the president and CEO of HT. Can you talk about what it was like when you when you got there and and what it is that you set out to achieve? So having been um, at Central State for um, a little over fifteen years, I'd done almost every job. So I was I had a lot of street cred to be a president, but I didn't have the credential because I was corporate. So I did not have the doctorate. And um, the president who I worked for, who was my mentor to this moment, um, he um, decided to retire. And I believed in my soul that I would be the next president of Central State. I had done my time. I knew the institution in and out. Um, we, 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 we took it from 800 students to a little over 2,200. Um, in that time frame, we rebuilt it. It was, it was moving forward. I was going to be the president. I, you know, I interviewed for 15 years. And the board was very kind to me and said, we love you. We want you to stay, but you don't have a doctorate. And that was like a big blow in my belly. Um, And I was 55 at that time. So I really went in a valley because it was the first time in my life that I was not qualified for something. I didn't have the right credentials. My son said I had plenty of street cred, but it's higher education. I got to have the credential. So once again, leap of faith, I went back to school to get my doctorate. Um, at the age of 55, and it was extremely intense. It was a little more complicated and trying than I anticipated. So I, um, when I was about to defend my dissertation, someone, well, actually, Michael Sorrell, who's the president of Paul Quinn, is my classmate at the University of Pennsylvania, where we got our doctorates together. Michael's in Dallas, and he nominated me for this position. He said, classmate, you should take this position. You, you, you would be a great president. He said, they need healing. I'll never forget that. And I was offended by that because, oh, because I'm a woman, you know, I'm the healer. That's what, you know, I want to be, a, I'm a leader. I'm a, you know, I'm a manager. I, I know this stuff. So, I was, uh, you know, but Michael and I are friends. So I, I, we talked about it. So I applied for the practice because I had never been in a presidential search, and they're very intense. And the trustees here at HT took this search very seriously, but I was practicing. So long story short, it changed from practicing to I really want that job when I came to Austin and I came on the campus and I met the students and I met the faculty, I met the staff, I read about the mission. So I wanted the position, like I was all in. So I got the position, Started July 1st, the first woman of the combined institutions. I didn't know anything about the 1928 plan. I came from a public institution. I will never complain about public universities ever again, because at least you get the um, enough funding to plan the floor, if you will, make your payroll, et cetera. Um, privates are, very, are not like that. It's expensive to serve poor people. Houston Tillerson was in a very fiscally fragile place. Um, we did not have a good relationship with the community um, um, and the, the community in general and in very specific ways. These are things that did not come out in the interview process because I was really enamored with being a president and getting a presidency in a prosperous city like Austin because I've done a lot of research about Austin. So um, here I am. So I set off on um, a journey with the in the partnership with my board 
to build a rock-solid cabinet, which I have, and there was already pockets of excellence within the faculty with caring deeply about the students, um, bringing their, their souls to what they do on a daily basis with very limited resources and a lot of challenges. And we still have most awards, but that's because humans work here, frankly. Um, and it's expensive to serve poor people. So I um, wanted to do three things. Lift the brand of the university, get fiscal stability, and grow our enrollment. And as you know, I've announced my retirement because you got to know when it's time to pass the baton, when it's good for you and when it's good for the university. And I'm a blip in the 146-year history, and we've gained fiscal stability. We're not rolling in the dough. We still That's why I got so excited about getting this, you know, this donation from my investment. We call them investments here on campus. But we are fiscally um, stable. Um, our brand has been lifted. Um, senator Watson, when he was senator, he was governor for a day, and he raised money for both the University of Texas or um, Dell Medical, and he raised money for Houston Tillerson. And Clay Johnston and I, who also became friends, were like in this competition together. And in my mind, I thought, wow, why would he do it with Dell Medical and HT? And he raised more money for HT than he raised for Dell Medical. And in my mind, I was like, our name, we have a brand in Austin. That was, that, was a, that was an indicator, a metric for me on my dashboard. And then the third was growing our enrollment. And we were on an upward trajectory pre-COVID. We have suffered um, some loss in our adult degree um, enrollment, our adult degree uh, population here on campus. But we will rebound. I have, I have no doubt about that. I have a rock-solid um, chief operating officer that manages um, a good team of uh, admissions and financial aid. And we are, the indicators are that we will, we will survive this. We are a stronger institution as a result of COVID. It's made us look at, look at ourselves and how we do things. And it's actually the silver lining is it's forced us to do things that we were always leery of. You know, higher education does not make a hard right turn. We're ocean liner. And this storm forced us into a hard right turn. And that has really um, helped to strengthen the institution and to give us courage, as an, more courage as an institution. So it's time for me to pass the baton. We're going to be launching a capital campaign in the next three years. Um, and a president needs time to get to know his or her institution. And, I, um, and it's just the right time for me to move on. And I don't, I have fear. I'll be candid about this. I'll be vulnerable because I don't know my next chapter. I have never not worked since I was 17 years old. And I'm six, I just had a 64th birthday. So in all those years, I've always had a next thing. Even when I was in school, one year of my um, doctoral studies, I did not work. And even then, I had something to get up to do every day, to you know, write for my dissertation, to do those things. I had, I had a mission, a purpose. So I... The universe, my sister keeps reminding me, God will take care of me. The universe, my gifts will make room for me. Um, that scripture that I tell other people, and now I need to, you know, hear it myself. Someone actually wrote it back to me recently. So um, that's been my journey here in Austin. And so when I, when I, true reflection, uh, and I had applied for a position, a larger institution, and did not get it. And but it, but it was a good moment for me because it forced me to be still and to reflect and think about what my campus has accomplished in the seven years that I've been here. 
And that's how I came to be. It, it became very clear to me that my purpose is over here. So I'll just have to stay open to see where my next chapter is. And now I've self-proclaimed myself as a lifetime resident of Austin. I love this city. It's a very magical place. We have our challenges. We still have a lot of work to do. But there's a lot of opportunity here for all. And there's a, there, there, the people who live in this city, um, not all, but the majority, it has been my experience, are really are willing and ready and are actually doing what I call the heart work, H-E-A-R-T, to dismantle systemic racism and the challenges that we have. It's going to take a lot of heart work and individual reflection and work. But I meet those people. I know those people every single day. And I see that work happening. I'm very encouraged by that. And I want to continue to be a part of it. And I teach at the University of Texas um, a, a course in the summer. So I already have my natural connection to the city. So... Oh, I should share this. One of my faculty members asked me um, when I'm not on the uh, we're sta we're standing up a center of justice and equity, which has been which was one of the things I wanted to accomplish here on campus. And um, uh, my faculty member asked me. I'm saying this on a recording, so he can't step back from it. He asked me to step to sit on his board um, once I step down from the presidency, and I'm really looking forward to that. Well, I think everyone who's had a chance to get to know you is is excited to see what that next chapter brings. Um, I, I would love to, because you touched on it, um, and it's been an important topic on on here to help the response to the pandemic. So you were in this role for just about five years. You had done all this work to lay the foundation, and and then a global pandemic and and financial crisis hits, and as we saw throughout the pandemic, institutions and systems that were already struggling got hit pretty hard. Can you talk a little bit about um, what it was like to, to make the transition to virtual online learning and then bringing students back on campus and, and how the, both the institution and, and you, what, what you learned uh, about HT and yourself through that process? So the, the big answer is I learned just how committed the people that I work with here on this campus every day are to this mission and how it's personal for them, uh, the survival of the institution and to move it from surviving, to continue to move it from surviving to thriving. Because as I said, we were stable. You know, we were, we had, we had stabilized ourselves. We weren't, um, we weren't as fragile as we were. So I, you know, really came to see that we're not fragile at all. Not at all. Um, that might be, you know, the fiscally fragile term that you read about. Um, that might be the words that are used. But the grit at this institution, we've survived Jim Crow. We, um, we were founded 10 years after um, Juneteenth. So we started with um, either enslaved people, people who had been enslaved or, or their descendants, their, their children. That's just a fact. And over the t years, the standard of excellence that this institution has maintained, despite the forces coming against it when the University of Texas integrated, you know, just all the things that happened, um, racial strife, um, just everything, just it, it's a survivor. So who, how, how dare me to think that this institution can't survive it? But in that moment, in my humanity, I had a lot of anxiety about it. Um, 
that lasted a very short time. And when I look back on it, I was reflecting on this with someone a couple of days ago, a couple of weeks ago. And when I look back on it, it's just every day we just did it. Like we just did it. Um, that's, you know, I read where um, they said that crises don't make strong leaders. They reveal strong leaders. And uh, my brother and sister presidents, we spend a lot of time talking about this, how we come and almost stay in crisis mode. And this, this one crisis really was a, a shaking and wake up call. So I alluded to this earlier about going online, about, you know, that hard right turn. We were very fortunate. I am an engineer. So we, um, we have a rock solid IT infrastructure and, um, we had put into place all of the things that you need to teach remotely or to teach online, I'll say. Uh, but we did not have any fully online degrees. So we had some hybrid work and a few courses online, but nothing, um, nothing large. So we had it all in place. So my faculty and staff, within two weeks, we lifted the entire institution from bricks and mortar to online with the things that we had already planned and in place. We had kept putting our toe in the water. We said, we're going to have an associate's degree full, fully online by this date. And then that date would come and always be something that we were like, well, we're not quite ready. Well, we had to be ready. Um, and our students were, it, it, was, it was not the desirable thing. It was not. And it was such an eye-opener because the internet, my students were just, they were extraordinary through it. The internet is not a utility. It's not a utility and everybody doesn't have access to the internet. So the week that we, we were going on spring break and faculty asked for a week extension for them to prepare their syllabus and, you know, get their courses together to, for, for online delivery. So we extended spring break a week. And that was the two weeks that we took to take it online. So the day that we were closing the residence hall and I spend a lot of time with my students. So this has been a very sad occasion for me when we didn't have students here on campus so we were closing the residence halls for spring break, but we were telling students, take your things home because we're going to go online. And a student came up to me and she said, Dr. Burnett, I'm really, she was very stressed. And this has been very hard on students, very, very hard on them. She said, um, Dr. Burnett, I don't have a computer and I don't have um, the internet at home. And I said, it's going to be okay. You'll have access, we'll, we'll work it out. And I said, you, you, you can have, she, she said, well, I have a computer I could borrow. I said, and you can get access. And I said this to her, I said, you can get free internet, free Wi-Fi and McDonald's or Starbucks. Don't use that as an excuse. You can get that anywhere. I didn't know that everything was going to be shut down. And in, in reflection, when everything was shutting down, we launched a campaign to raise enough money for our students to have, every student to have a Surface, um, to purchase their, their, that machine for them, that um, um, tablet for them, and for them to have hotspots, et cetera, everything they need, and to ship that to them. So we launched this campaign to do that, and the city of Austin did step up. I was a little disappointed, I'll be candid, um, because some of some larger entities who I thought would really come through for us did not, but that made us scrap harder and dig deeper and show who we are. And we met that mark. And this was pre-CARES Act money. 
because you know we no one knew that the cares that the stimulus or the cares act money her etc was going to even you know be distributed that was really a lifesaver for many reasons because when we decided to close our residence halls we lost 1.6 million dollars in revenue instantly and then we had to refund students for the time that they weren't in the residence halls so it was one fiscal challenge after the other and um all that said the hardest thing for me was having to postpone commencement because commencement is a rite of passage for my students. We graduate um, families, not individuals. So to take that rite of passage away from my um, um, students and their families was very, very hard for me. Uh, that was probably one of the hardest decisions I've made in my entire career to include my corporate managing ferry systems, et cetera, et cetera. That seemed irrelevant, um, which is why I love what I do. Because you're really, you're really helping people to live their best lives. So we did have the commencement for the class of 2020 and the class of 2021 in August of last year. Um, it was hot, hot, hot. And I was overwhelmed and pleased with the number of students that came back for their commencement from the class of 2020. They wanted that opportunity to walk across that stage and to get that diploma. It, it, it's, it's monumental in their lives and for their families to come and um, experience that with them. And COVID did not take that away from us. Um, is the, the power in that moment where that they, they earn that degree. No one can take it from them. And it's an equalizer in their lives. And COVID just couldn't take that from us. So I learned a lot about, at my campus, I can't say this enough, we are stronger because of COVID. Or, or maybe even in spite of COVID, we're stronger. Hmm. On the about page for Houston Tillotson, you have two hashtags that you use, hashtag we are you and hashtag I am the pipeline. Can you talk a little bit about the significance there? So the I am the pipeline was born um, <laughs> and out of a moment that I, when I, my second year here, I participated in a um, panel at Google Fiber about the challenges that Austin has when it comes to hiring people of color in the um, technology spaces. So I, you know, I was invited to participate on the panel and I talked about the, the um, Houston Tillerson and how we have 200 plus bright young people graduating in all kinds of fields that can be used in, um, all, all, in all kinds of ways in the tech spaces. Not everybody is a techie, as you know, you know, in a, in a technology company, you have people who have to write well and people who do human resources, back office operations, accounting, et cetera. So, and not only that, we also have math. We also have some STEM majors. So I got on, you know, on stage, got on my, you know, my, my platform talking about the beauty of Houston Tillerson, my wonderful students that, you know, can diversify the workplace and the, the role Houston Tillerson plays in that in Austin so right after I finished, the next person was from a Fortune 10 company that will remain unnamed, um, a very senior person in that company. And they asked, you know, a question of her about diversifying the workforce. And she started off and said, we just have such a hard time in finding people of color to hire in Austin. And I thought to myself, this person has not, and I probably didn't say person in my mind, um, this person did <laughs> not hear anything I said. 
So, you know, they have that big screen at Google Fiber behind you. So one of my colleagues was in the audience and he told me later that I did like this. Looked at her like, like I can't believe she just said that. She didn't, she didn't hear anything I said. She needs to do hard work. So at the end, um, my very dear friend Preston James was also on the panel. And during the panel, Preston had talked about, um, he runs Div Inc. And he had talked about um, uh, what if scenarios. That's how you, you know, how you peel the onion back, where you get to authenticity and hiring and placing people of color. So I said, I'm going to use what Mr. J, I didn't really know Preston that well then. I said, I'm going to use Mr. James's what if scenario, how you keep going, keep inquisitive, keep, keep challenging yourself to get to a space. So I said, I'm going to use the what if scenario. I said, what if Austin, Texas had a historically black college right in the center of the city producing 200 plus graduates? I said, I bet that would help us address the challenges that we have when it comes to diversifying the workforce. We should look into how we can do that. Now, I was being sarcastic. I was being, you know, but I was I was frustrated. And I was also getting to know Austin at that time. So I left thinking, and it went rock, it went silent. Like it was a full room. No one said anything. So I thought, oh brother, oh well, whatever. I'm I'm just that's just who I who I am. So I left. I walked and I got right off the stage and left. And this young man ran behind me. And he was a, a writer with the um, um, Austin Statesman. And um, he said, um, I'd like to come over and talk to you. I'm interested about what you said about um, Houston Tillerson University filling the pipeline, because I had said that in my, my talk. So I said, sure. I gave him my card and he followed through. And fast forward maybe three months, he came, he came on campus, interviewed me, and like three months had passed by. So I... Um, um, had spoke at the NAACP Freedom Fund dinner on a Saturday night. And I woke up that morning to my phone buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. And all I, I didn't have my glasses on and all I could see was newspaper story. And I thought, oh my gosh, did I offend somebody? Do I need to call my board? Am I in trouble? What did I say last night? So I get up, I run to get the newspaper and... Uh, a story was, and I'm a mother of a journalist, so this is important to me. A story was on this, it was Sunday's paper, on below the fold, um, a story about Houston Tillerson University and the pipeline. And my PR people picked that up and started saying, hashtag, I am the pipeline. And it really stuck. And even when we were talking to Tesla recently about how helping for them helping us stand up a mechanical engineering um, um excuse me a manufacturing not mechanical engineering i'm anti-mechanical engineering because of my <laughs> own experience <laughs> a manufacturing engineering degree we talked about the pipeline and building the pipeline and a, a you know a funnel if you will for young people to progress through their careers into particular positions so the we are ideal, hashtag we are ideal, ideal is our, um, an acronym for our core values on campus. And we believe deeply in our core values. We work hard to, to meet them. Integrity, diversity, excellence, accountability, and leadership. That's who we are as a campus and it's what we work to instill in our students. And our students actually pick that up even more so than I do sometimes. I can only speak for myself because they have ideal week that students sponsor 
Monday is all about integrity, um, Tuesday, diversity, Wednesday, excellence, Thursday, accountability, and Friday, they have me come and talk to them about leadership. So um, it made me very happy when I saw that our students actually picked up those core values that we and hashtag we are ideal. Well, Dr. Burnett, every time we talk, I feel like there's not enough time to even scratch the surface at all the things that I'd, I'd love to hear from you about. But um, I'd just like to close with the question that we always end with, which is when you look back now as we're getting ready to as hard as this is to 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 believe, um, look at the start of the third year of this pandemic. When you look back over this time, can you um, talk about anything that you've seen or or experienced that has left you with some hope and optimism for the future? It's the grit of young people. Um, if you are 19, 20 years old, in your entire life, we've had crises. It's just one after the other. And they get punched in the belly with something and they just, like the transformer, they get stronger. And the young students here on this campus, they're extremely civically engaged. Um, this spring, students are actually um, organizing and sponsoring a, a panel here, a, a conference here on the campus, student-led, um, with one of their faculty members about the politics of the day and the power of voting and being an informed voter. That gives me great hope that these young people, that they want that, to, they, they want to teach themselves. Um, they want to understand um, the decision makers and how they get to office. And hopefully it will spark for some of them to become public servants. So um, their stories are so amazing. And they're, they're, they, the way that they look at the world is so encouraging. It's really fearless. Um, even my own children, they are my sheroes, my hero. I like want to be my own children when I, when I grow up. Because I look at, you know, even having gone through 13 different schools, they're like chameleons. So young people give me great hope. And through this um, pandemic, I have seen them at their worst um, which then they come back and come back at their at their best, where you don't have the tools to pursue your education, but you don't let that stop you. You have faith in your institution that um, is going to you know partner with you, and you know that you have to do your part to be able for you to become a college graduate, which is the ultimate goal. And that's once again, education is the great equalizer. And these young people see that, they know that, and they want it. They're hungry, and that gives me great hope for the future. Dr. Burnett, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an, a wonderful conversation, but thank you so much for everything that you do for Austin, for the world. And, and I think like everyone else, I'm uh, excited to be on the sidelines and, and cheer you on and, and whatever comes next. Cause it, it, you know, while you've had a, uh, what is a pretty uh, long and impressive career, it feels like you're still just getting started. So I can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you for saying that, Chris. And I really want to take a second to thank you um, for your friendship. Um, from the first time that we met, um, we have a, um, we have a kinship. We are examples of two people that are more alike than they are different, as different as we may appear to be, we're actually more alike. And I really appreciate your friendship and your support and your encouragement and for everything that you do for our community. Thanks for listening to Here to Help. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and download the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Until next time.